This is a doctrine, the Spirit is a person of the Godhead that is mysterious, I think, to most Christians. Most Orthodox Christians, in one way or another, could answer the question, who makes up the Godhead, by saying the Father, the Son, and the Spirit make up the Godhead. But if you were to ask them, who is He and what does He do, I think that would be a more difficult question for most to answer. We've seen a lot of religious kooks through the years on TV who use the name of the Spirit a lot and do some pretty astounding, if not unbelievable things. And so sometimes because of that as an overreaction, we run away from that altogether. But in so doing, we are not worshiping God in His fullness as we should. And probably because of that, we are misunderstanding the totality of salvation in which the Spirit is intimately operative if we do not understand Him and what He does. I have referenced a book from a favorite author of mine named Sinclair Ferguson through this study. Let me read you another quote from his book on the Spirit. The central role of the Spirit is to reveal Christ and to unite us to Him and to all those who participate in His body. To sustain us in Christ term that Paul uses around 160 times in various ways in the New Testament. To sustain us in Christ is the heart and soul of the Spirit's ministry. If this is the case, if the initiation of our salvation and the sustaining of our faith until Jesus returns is the central work of the Spirit, it is essential and frankly non-negotiable that we know Him and understand Him. And so we have taken our time over the past few weeks to explore the person and work of the Spirit. We will continue that today and for another week or two, depending on how they go and what we get through. We began by looking all the way back in the Old Testament, references to the Spirit, both in the initial work of creation to bring form out of formlessness, the way that He lived in and among God's covenant people, guiding them superintending them, motivating them toward holiness as they trusted God. And yet, by and large, the people of the Old Testament, even God's covenant people, Israel, by and large, turned from Him. And though an external law, the Mosaic law, stood over them, telling them what they should be like and how they should worship, by and large, they did not worship God. Their hearts were likened to hearts of stone, But in the prophets, we were promised, particularly in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, that one day this stony heart problem, this calcification, that it could be overcome and would be overcome by the coming of a new covenant through the Messiah and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. So in many ways, the Old Testament is preparatory for what would happen in Christ, the coming of a new covenant. Likewise, the Old Testament creates within us a lot of longing. Perhaps right now as you're reading through your Bibles this year, you are in places in the Old Testament and you just kind of groan. You think to yourself, how could these people who had such privileges and such promise? How could they continue to turn away from God over and over and over? And why was the world so bad? 
And then, if you are wise and discerning, you can look at this world and you can say, it's still bad. And frankly, I'm often still bad. How can I change and how can this world change? We saw how Christ was the possessor and distributor of the Spirit as we came into the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John show how Jesus walked in the power of the Spirit as a man of the Spirit, ushering in a new age. And through His death and resurrection, ratifying the new covenant that the prophets promised, He began to dispense the Spirit. We saw that already in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. Jesus, from heaven, in fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel, dispenses His Spirit to His people, doing miraculous works so that the world might be transformed. All those who will trust Jesus as Messiah, they will be indwelt by the Spirit of God. As we saw last week in John chapters 14 through 16, the Comforter, the Helper, He would remind the people of Jesus all that He had said. He would convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He would minister the very presence of Jesus to His people. Jesus told His disciples that it was better that He went away so that He would send the Helper. Because through Him indwelling us, Jesus would indwell all of us. So, in a sense, we could say that where the Spirit is, Jesus is indwelling us, ministering to us, and transforming us. And so, the Spirit has been given to us in this new covenant age to bring about the process of restoration entirely. And until Jesus returns and completes that restoration process, it is the Spirit's role to make us the people of God in holiness. And as we were talking about just a few moments ago in our family time, as we think through disciple-making and how to do that best, we are relying always on the supernatural work of the Spirit. Supper clubs and small groups and men's and women's studies, these things cannot make a person holy. The Spirit does that. Now, these are tools in which the Spirit works, through which the Spirit works to make us holy. But we are constantly relying on power from heaven, not on the wisdom of elders, not on the mutual discipline or dependence of one another, but upon God. So here's the idea. From beginning to end, salvation is a work of God. We cannot make it happen. We have no righteousness to offer God. We are not faithful enough, self-disciplined enough, holy enough, to make God love us and accept us. The Scriptures teach us, as we have learned, that God initiated salvation before the foundation of the world, purposing to make us His own through the atonement of His Son and then the ministry of the Spirit, which means that salvation does not end at the moment of conversion or when we get to the pearly gates to the golden city and the in-between time, these lives that we are leading are some sort of throwaway period. No. God purposed salvation before the foundation of the world that we would be transformed entirely. So God the Trinity, 
the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are intimately and integrally involved in transforming us from the moment of conversion, which is based upon His pre-foundation of the world choosing, and through our transformation by degree, by degree, by degree over time until Jesus returns and ushers us into the very presence of God for eternity where there be no more sin and no more brokenness and no more tragedy and no more sadness. This means that God is saving us from beginning to end. The Apostle Paul teaches us that he who began a good work in us will perform it until the day of Christ. And that's why we are here. We are here as the people of Christ, indwelt by the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, that we might be transformed over time by God for His glory and our mutual joy which is why we take discipleship so seriously. We are to position ourselves in such a way, hearing the Word, fellowshipping together, serving each other, sharing the gospel together. We are to position ourselves in such a way that the Spirit may do His work. So though we cannot transform ourselves, that is the work of God, we position ourselves so that we might be transformed, and today is another opportunity for that. So let's move further into the person and work of the Spirit on our behalf as people in this new age, people of the new covenant. The Spirit renews us through, first of all today, new birth. I've asked you to turn to John 3. This is a passage which is pretty familiar to most of you, at least a couple of verses in this passage. But I want to read a little broader section. And I want us to see that the ministry of Jesus, our Savior, the one who came to atone for our sins, the Lamb of God who John the Baptist baptizes back in John chapter 1, who takes away the sin of the world, that His ministry and the ministry of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, are intimately connected together to transform and renew us entirely. John chapter 3 verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And I'll just stop for a moment. Nicodemus was probably part of what we call the Sanhedrin, one of the ruling, the primary ruling body of the Jews. They were intrigued by what Jesus was doing Mostly, it was not a good intrigue. They, they didn't like Jesus. They thought He was going to usurp their authority. They, they could not see Him for what He was because they were so caught up in their self-righteousness. But there were a few, including Nicodemus, who couldn't miss what was going on. They, they knew that this was a work from God. This one was sent from God. But out of fear, He comes at night to have this interview with Jesus. Jesus, of course, knew this. So He says, to Nicodemus in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this would have been a religious scholar. He would have been basically peerless in his understanding of the Old Testament, probably knew it word for word by heart, and he's dumbfounded. So, Nicodemus says in verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? A natural question, right? 
Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answers, and he gets pretty direct here, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus, still confused, says to him in verse 9, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. So in context, now, here's your football placard verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3 is incredibly helpful and answering the question, how can a person be saved? They can be saved if they trust Jesus. What is it Jesus came to do? Jesus came to succeed where the first Adam failed. Adam did not keep God's law. Jesus, the second Adam, did. He was perfectly righteous. And he did not die, did not suffer, because he had broken God's law. He suffered in our place because all of us have. Jesus became our substitute, atoning for our sin, covering our sin. How can this be applied to us? To use a big theological word, how might it be imputed to us? That means, how can it be credited to us? This righteousness from outside of us Because left to ourselves, we will be judged. We will be condemned. How might we pass from death to life? How can we make it through God's courtroom and not come out lethally judged? How? How can the gavel fall and the sentence not be condemnation? Because Jesus died in our place. And if we will trust Him, This one who was lifted up in our place, who suffered in our place, the merits of his righteousness will be credited or imputed, applied to us, and we will be saved. But by what means? How is it that children of wrath like us, like we recently studied in Ephesians chapter 2, sons and daughters of disobedience, Paul further says to amplify our condition, how is it that we will trust this one who is righteous. When we, from the beginning, all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, have been resting in our own self-righteousness, how can such a disease, that, that calcified heart disease, that hard-heartedness that the prophets talked about, how can that be overcome? It has to be divinely initiated. And, and that's why Jesus talks to Nicodemus this way. Nicodemus, like his brethren, were 
caught up in their self-righteousness. And Jesus knew this. And the only way that Nicodemus calcified heart, the only way that his self-righteous disease could be overcome is if heaven broke in. And that's why Jesus says that one must be born of water and the Spirit. The Spirit must enter in and do a sovereign work. Jesus likens the work of the Spirit in verse 8 of John 3 to the wind. You cannot visibly see the wind. The wind isn't purple. It's not chunky. It's not wavy. It's invisible. But you do see the effects of the wind. When I woke up this morning, when it was still dark, I woke up not only to my strange classical music alarm, which, by the way, I want to recommend to you the app I use for waking up in the morning. Um, I have to solve math problems. I hate getting up in the morning. I'm a night owl. But the way I get up in the morning, because I have a lot of really early morning meetings, is that my alarm goes off and plays classical music, and to turn it off, I have to solve math problems. Like, even with, like, order of operations. This is a free announcement for the morning. I get no kickback. But if you struggle to get up in the morning, I recommend to you the Android alarm app. When I woke up this morning, I woke up not only to my annoying alarm, but I also woke up to a really strong winds. I was afraid that shingles were going to come peeling off of my house. I couldn't see it, but I could hear it. And had I gone outside, I would have been able to feel it. That's the work of the Spirit. You don't see it coming, but when it comes, it produces an effect. We believe fundamentally that the Scriptures teach that one is justified, passes from death to life on the basis of faith. The righteousness of Jesus is credited to us, imputed to us on the basis of our faith. John 3 teaches that inescapably. So if somebody were to ask you, how might I be saved? What do you tell them? You tell them to place their faith in Jesus. Not just to believe certain facts about Him, but to bank on Him, to rest on Him, to trust Him entirely. But how is that brought about, according to Jesus? It's brought about by the Spirit. And how do you know that the Spirit has blown? And Jesus uses a word play here. In the original language, Greek, the word for wind is the same word for spirit. The wind or the spirit blows and produces faith and repentance. In verse 17 of John chapter 3, it is clear that humanity has a massive problem. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And in verse 19, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone, verse 20, who does wicked things hates the light. It has not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. What can cause a person? What can motivate? What can compel a person to turn from darkness to light? It is the Spirit. And then what will be the result? What will be the effect? The effect will be faith and repentance. Why is it that by and large, the old covenant people of God were not marked by holistic, lasting, lifelong faith and repentance? It's because by and large, they tried to establish their righteousness through keeping the law. 
Sometimes for a generation that would work okay, but by and large it was a disaster. No one was ever justified. No one ever was justified in the sight of God or, or declared to be righteous, passing from death to life by keeping the law. It's impossible. The law is holy and righteous and good. We'll talk more about that next week, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. But the law cannot justify. The law cannot transform. The law merely declares to us that there is a righteous standard and we don't measure up to it. Now, that's important. Frankly, it's critical and integral because it drives us to dependence upon righteousness from outside of us. That the only way that we who love to hide in the darkness and squint against the light because it's piercing and uncomfortable and condemning, the only way that that can be overcome, that that moral opposition, that willful rebellion which has been going on since the garden, the only way that can be overcome is by the Spirit. And that's why the prophets promised the Spirit. We've referenced a couple of times in the study Ezekiel chapter 37. When singing a song recently about Ezekiel chapter 37, that dry bones can come alive, but only by the Spirit of God. And when Jesus came and fulfilled His ministry and dispensed His Spirit to His people, the promise was fulfilled. So if you are trusting Jesus here today, if you have passed from death to life, if your life is marked, by and large, by faith and repentance, you know, because John 3 tells us so, from the very lips of our Savior, that this came from heaven. The Spirit renews us through new birth. The expectation, the longing that the Old Testament puts in front of us, that though external codes of righteousness are integral and important, they can't save us. Please, God, do something to save us and end this endless cycle of desperate longing for renewal. He did. He sent His Son to be with us, Emmanuel, who gave us His Spirit, And Jesus promised that He would not leave us as orphans, and so His Spirit is with us now to bring us to new birth. But the Spirit renews us not only through new birth, He also renews us through sealing. Let's look together in Ephesians chapter 1. By the way, those of you who love verse-by-verse expositional teaching, which we've been doing here from the beginning of our church, we've talked through John and Romans and Genesis and Ephesians, now we're working through the book of Acts, we will be back there in a few weeks. But occasionally it's important for us to take a more topical approach to Scripture so that we can see the big sweep of the story. But trust me, we'll be back in our verse-by-verse teaching very soon. The Spirit renews us through new birth and then according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, through sealing. Notice here in Ephesians chapter 1, again, the connection between the work of the Savior, Jesus, and the work of the Spirit. 
Blessed be the God, verse 3, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. That's the purpose of salvation, holiness and blamelessness for the glory of God. In love, so He also loved us. This is not some artificial, cold-hearted holiness we're directed toward. It's total transformation for our joy. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So glory and blessing go together inextricably. Verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The Spirit renews us through new birth initially and then keeps us through sealing. In ancient times, you often saw kings doing this. They would make an edict, create a new law, and then they would take a little bit of heated wax and take their signet ring and punch it, thereby putting the royal insignia on it and ratifying it, making it law. It was sealed. It was settled because the sovereign said so. There are many days where we don't feel like we belong to God, right? Some of you have felt like that this past week. The Spirit prompted you to read your Bible and either with words out loud or in your heart, you said no. He prompted you to talk to Jesus and rely on Him, but instead you trusted your own plans. He prompted you to rely upon Him to produce His fruit in you, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, and instead you trusted in your own strength. You were unkind to your spouse, unkind to your children, perhaps you lied or you lusted. That takes in a large swath of a lot of us if we were really being honest and transparent. So the point is, sometimes we don't feel like we belong to God, and sometimes we don't act like it. But are we kept? Are the promises of the new covenant for transformation sure and lasting, or are they dependent upon our moral strength? Thank God, God the Trinity where the Father, Son, and Spirit all show up in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Thank God that our salvation is from heaven, it is sovereign, and it will come to completion. Because we've been sealed sovereignly. The edict of our sovereign has been placed upon us, and it is irrevocable. This means that we will be kept this does not mean that there will not be intervals in our lives where we are more or less faithful, more or less holy even in an experiential sense. 
but it does mean that progressively over time, we will be transformed. And not only does the Spirit seals us according to Ephesians 1 and Romans chapter 8, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8 with me. Not only does He seal us, we have the sovereign imprint of God upon us through His Spirit, He also promises us adoption. This is a massively comforting doctrine of the gospel. Look with me, please, in verse 15 of Romans chapter 8. God's Word teaches us, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. How do we know we belong to God? Because His Spirit inside of us gives testimony to our adoption. If we have trusted Jesus through the sovereign regeneration of the Spirit, if we have been sealed by Him, if His imprint of ownership is upon us, promising us an eternal inheritance that cannot be taken away according to Ephesians 1, then we need not fear that we will lose this standing, for we are the children of God, and it is irrevocable. Our two sons that we adopted from Ethiopia have been home now about 18 months. As I look back upon our experience for those six weeks in Ethiopia as we were finalizing everything, some of it is a bit of a blur. A lot of days were the same. It was rainy season in the capital of Ethiopia, and so mostly we just stayed inside and shivered because we didn't think it would be so cold. And we just waited and longed for our government and their government to get things worked out so we could come back home. A lot of that's a blur. It was kind of a miserable experience in certain ways. But one of the best moments is the day that we went into the courtroom with the judge and took custody of our boys. So, in Ethiopian tradition, whenever you adopt a child, they take on your name. So, so legally on paper, my boy that you know is Abraham or Abe, legally on paper, his name is Tariku, that's his given Ethiopian name, Tariku Lee Davis. And Ezekiel, who you know as Zeke, his legal name on paper is Objoke, even Ethiopians don't know what that name means. Objoke Lee Davis, they're my boys. The judge asked Whitney and I as we sat in front of him, we weren't standing, we sat in front of him, do you understand that this is for forever? They knew we had biological children. They asked us if we would treat them the same as we treated our biological children, if all the rights that our biological children possess would be our adopted children's experience as well. And of course, we answered in the affirmative. And then we went back to the orphanage and took them out of their shabby existence and brought them into our family and all the rights that flow from that. Jesus is the Son of God and enjoys all the rights of that special relationship. But do you realize that because of the person and work of the third person of the Trinity, we've been brought into that experience? Jesus talks about this in John chapter 17. 
He prays to the Father that the disciples would be one with them as they experience this relationship of oneness. That's what the Spirit does for us. And this drives out fear whenever you sin. This drives out anxiety when you feel like no one is watching out for you. This drives out guilt when you feel like you are not measuring up to the family standard. This Spirit who in our hearts allows us to cry out, Abba, Father, has sealed us and brought us into this experience of adoption. If you can read that and meditate upon that and not find comfort and be frankly awed by this, you're not reading it rightly. The Spirit renews us through new birth, sealing, adoption, and lastly for today, image restoration. Now this last point is going to lead us into next week, the work of sanctification, how we are made more holy in our experience. But I want to just suggest today that the Spirit renews us not only through new birth or regeneration, through sealing and adoption, but also the promise of image restoration. Look with me, please, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about how he and his companions are ministers of the promise of the new covenant, the one that the prophets had promised that was brought to pass by Jesus and the dispensing of his Spirit. In verse 12, the apostle says, Since we have such a hope, the hope of glory, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, like Nicodemus and his companions, because only through Christ is it taken away. Now again, notice the connection between the ministry of the Spirit and Jesus. Yet, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Jesus ratified this in the new covenant and dispensed His Spirit, the Helper, to bring us into transformation. That's what Ephesians 1 promises us. We were predestined for adoption for the purpose of holiness and blamelessness. That's the trajectory, the direction, the the end goal of our salvation is is transformation entirely. And we realize on a daily basis, if that was left up to us, we would fail miserably. We'd never reach the finish line. Look with me, please, in Colossians chapter 3, lastly, as we close. In verse 5, the apostle says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, 
And notice now the sovereign work of God in verse 10. And have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now next week we're going to talk about the interplay between the work of God and our sanctification and how we apply ourselves to it. But I want to make it very clear today, according to Paul in places like 2 Corinthians 3 and Colossians 3, that this is the work of God. Even our daily transformation is the work of God and it is promised to us. It has been said that we are not yet what we want to be, often to our shame. But thank God we are not who we once were. Salvation comes down to us from heaven. Jesus did this through His incarnation, atoning for our sins and dispensing His Spirit. Through this, we are given new birth or regeneration. We are sealed and adopted into the family of God. It's irrevocable and it will never change. And we are promised image restoration. That will be our experience progressively over time. So I say to you that the doctrine of the person and work of the Spirit is not merely some abstract thing for the theological experts. It's not so you can pass questions on a Bible quiz. This is for our hearts, and it is for our hope. Thank God that He has given us Spirit to make us His own and make us new. Let's trust Him this week. Now let's pray to Him.